Hello and welcome to the Paluga Podcast, a brand new show dedicated to the world of boxing. Over the coming months, we'll be bringing you interviews with some of the fight game's most colourful characters. From boxers, promoters, trainers, commentators and writers, we've got your boxing needs covered. I'm your host, James Copley, and today I'm joined by former British Commonwealth and World Cruiserweight Champion, Glenn McCrory. A man who went from signing on the dole to collecting belts, sparring Mike Tyson and fighting Lennox Lewis. So sit back and enjoy the ride. Right, so Glenn, thank you very much for joining us and taking some time out of your day to speak to us. Uh, the first question I really have to ask is, how have you been doing during all of this unprecedented coronavirus chaos and how has your day-to-day routine changed? I think, um, you know, being somebody that is around home a lot uh, and then away a lot, it's um, you've just kind of you've just kind of got to get into a routine of being home and finding things to do. Um, I quite like you know I quite like being at, I quite like being at home. I like it, believe it or not, I love to cook. So I'm, I'm a big cook. I love to read. Um, so you know, being on my own and and you know, having a bit of time, it's, it's you know I mean the kids, I, my little ones come around and and spend time with them. So it's it's. You know, it's been a time of much thought, I think, <laughs> for everybody, hasn't it? Oh, yeah, definitely. It definitely feels like uh, 10 or 12 weeks of, of self-reflection. Um, yeah, we're both from the northeast, yourself from Gateshead, whereas uh, I'm from Sunderland. Um, I'll, Stanley, yes, of course. Yeah. What was it like growing up in the 60s and 70s and 80s in the northeast as the son of a, a working-class steel worker? And I believe you had a couple of miners in your yeah. family as well. How? how what, what was that like? That was, um, you know, it was pretty grim, if I'm honest. As as a child, as a child growing up in the northeast, it was. And you're obviously too young for this, but it was it was very industrial, and it was smoke all over, and it was dark, and it was grey. And where I lived, Constant Steel Company belched out, belched out the the red dust in the horizon, and um, the mines. It's you're on my doorstep, Ransom Miles, and at Anfield Plain, so there was mines all around. So it was, it was, it was pretty bleak. And to be honest, my memories as a child are in black and white. And I don't know. That's just you know. I thought my uncle, my uncles were all miners, so I thought they were black till till <laughs> twelve. Because it, it was, it was, you know, it was that sort of, it was that sort of, um, that sort of place around the northeast then. And and do you know what? But it was a very happy childhood. People seemed content then. People were in employment. They had jobs, you know, however hard they were. You know, I think, you know, everybody went, there was a big community. We, you know, my dad was always down the, the, the workman's club. And, you know, it was, um, it was, it was bleak and it was poor, but it was, it was nice. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you think maybe perhaps when the mines and the steelworks have, have kind of left the Northeast, that that kind of, not basic level of respect, but that, that kind of, I want to say almost kind of socialist help each other out in a crisis and, and such a strong sense of community. If, do you think that's, that's gone a little bit nowadays? Do you know, I think the last bastion of that is the Northeast. Mm. You know, that, that friendliness, that community spirit is, is, is trying to hang on in, in the Northeast. And I think everywhere else it's gone. Everybody's just all for themselves and, and what they can do. And, and I think, you know, when you, were, when you were young, growing up, everybody looked after each other. People helped you. I mean, I remember a couple of the guys, the, the steward of the local club, you know, my dad, I'm from a big family and, um, you know, they come and one of the local fighters, um, you know, who is like, is like family to me now, um, my uncle Rocky Railton. And, and they came as, you know, taking the boys to a boxing show, you know, to, to get them, you know, to, to get them interested in something. So it was great. That sort of community spirit, everybody, everybody sort of, help each other and you know there's always kind words and it was it was a good place it was a good time to grow up mm-hmm. and, and you had quite a, a large family during that time as well didn't you we did and it kept growing <laughs> <laughs> my mom kept adding to it with, uh, <laughs> with 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 family so it was yeah it was good you know we had you know dad's on the low income so it was very hard you know i was, I was three in a bed till i was 18 <laughs> so so it was it was tough, you know. It was secondhand clothes and and all that. But do you know what? If you've got lovely parents, which I had, um, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you haven't got a bike. It doesn't matter if you haven't got 
the nicest toys. You know, if you've got a cuddle and you've got something that cares for you and they're putting food on the table, that's the loveliest thing in the world. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you touched on it slightly there, but how did your boxing journey begin, Glenn? Who or what caused a, a Durham boy to pick up a, a pair of gloves? Well, believe it or not, it would be you know, the greatest. It would be um, Muhammad Ali. And just, I've got all my books, my boxing books here. And I'm not, this is not planned or anything, but just as we <laughs> said that, I actually, this, that is, is, was my first inspiration. It was a little, um, you know, like a, the equivalent of a penny store mm-hmm. down, down in Anfield Plain, where, where I'm from, where I was born. And, um, and this, this book was, was in the window. You know, it just fascinated me. You know, I must have been like 10 year old or something like that. Anyhow, I saved up, saved up the, the pennies to buy that book. Still there all these years later. And that was, that was, that was it. You know, Muhammad Ali. And he was just a massive, a massive inspiration. The things that was happening around his life at the time. Obviously, when I was born was a year. I mean, it's quite mad. But the year he won the world title was the year. Um, I was born. He was my inspiration. Came into boxing. I met him at 19. He he was he was a guest when I was when I was boxing down in London. He was a guest and asked to meet me. Oh wow! All of a sudden, my hero asked to meet me because I did the alley shuffle and all that to to impress him. I don't know what he saw in me, but he saw something and he said he grabbed me, put his fist in my face and told me I'd be I'd be champion of the world one day. And and I was. I met him a few years later when I was sparring. Tyson came over to see me and. It, Parkinson's had set in then, and, and and it was very very sad. And then years later, I um that that came true. His prediction came true. I won the I won the the cruiserweight championship of the world. And amazingly, a nod when he died. He died on the the same day of my world title victory. So wow. June the third. So it was the same day. And then I, you know I commentated for Sky TV on his whole funeral and the whole thing. So there's kind of, you know, for a little kid from Montreal playing, there's kind of like an indelible link yeah, to the greatest. Yeah. I suppose lots of, lots of young people around the world have that same link. You know, have some little, yeah. little thing with Muhammad Ali. Absolutely. I mean, for me, I'm only 25, so I can only watch videos of Muhammad Ali. I can't imagine what it was actually like to meet him, especially when he was, you know, um, quite a, a functioning guy, still still on the boxing scene. It must have been absolutely incredible for a young lad. It was it was amazing. It was um, it was absolutely, you know, it's, it, it's when dreams come true. I mean, it ranks alongside sort of winning the world title because mm. it to box in front of them was something else. I never knew it was there, and it was it was about my it was about my fourth or fifth fight or something. I was under undefeated. I was nineteen years of age. And just because he was there, I wanted to do the alley shuffle, you know, just to let him know, yeah. just to let him know how much, how much I cared about him, how much he had affected me. And then I got a message in the dressing room to say he wanted to meet me, come down, and and you know, it was, it was just so special. And I think you know, when you go on through life and things happen to you, you realize, you know, what a what an amazing man he was to take the time out, and how much that affected me as a youngster, how much that that kept me going, how much that inspired me. And, you know, for celebrities nowadays, I think they've got to be aware of how much they can mean to some people. And, and you know, what he did changed my life and he didn't have to do that. So um, it was just a mark of a, a marvellous, marvellous man. I was just privileged and honoured to ever come in contact with him. And, and did that provide the motivation for maybe when things got a little bit tough in, in your professional boxing career that you, that you were spurred on because of the words Ali had said to you? Very much so. I mean, in the Northeast, it wasn't really set out, especially where, where I'm from. There was nothing set out for pro boxing. Um, the first professional fight I ever saw live, I was in it. <laughs> so so yeah. that tells you, you know, how, how far removed we were from the professional, the professional business. So it was very, very tough. I mean, I had to go to London, didn't, didn't like it there. I didn't really have a trainer in my career. The manager, you know, didn't have a gym, didn't have... So it got very tough. Um, and I don't think people are aware of, of, you know, where we come from and what little there was, what little there was back then for a professional boxer. So it did get tough. I lost a bunch of fights. You know, I had no gym to train in. I had no trainer. I had, you know, and I was still having fights five days notice and stuff like that. And I was pretty much a journeyman. But the one thing that stuck in my mind 
during that very bleak and awful period was was the fact that why did Ali and I lost five out of six fights and why did Ali say why did Muhammad Ali say to me I'd be champion of the world and and you know I, I just kept persevering and really I found it with my weight you know my manager had put me in as a heavyweight when as an amateur I was a light heavyweight which is mm. you know stones below that uh, I got my weight down and, and never looked back and you know won the British the Commonwealth and then the the world cruiserweight title boxing out of a fruit shop in Catchgate, which had no ring, no toilets. All it had was a, you know, we hung a punch bag from the, from the roof. And it's it's really shows you what you can do with a bit of inspiration and a bit of perseverance. It's a, it's a real Rocky Balboa story. Well, not perspiration, yeah. It's, it's a real um, Rocky Balboa story when you, when you think about it. I'd like to take you back, actually, if I can, um, to your amateur days, just for people that maybe aren't aware of, um, of what sort of amateur career you had, because you, you did win a, a few titles down in amateur, didn't you? I just, to be honest, I, I was, um, I had my first, I've gotten to the gym about 13 years of age. I was um, a big, tall, skinny kid, so they couldn't, they couldn't match me or, or maybe didn't think I was ready or whatever, but I had my first fight um, when I was 15 and I was national champion the, the following year. Um, it, it's 16, box for, box for Young England, um, box with an Irish team out in America with some of the Northeast boys and Irish select. Um, we were guys like I think it was uh, Pedro Phillips and mm. that came out with us we went to America but I boxed the New York Golden Gloves um, and won out there so it was um, yeah it was it was, but it was very very short and then I turned professional as soon as I came back from that because as a kid growing up you know when I first went to the gym and I saw bests I didn't know what that was I didn't know mm. whether it was because of the weather in the northeast that they were wearing bests what it was but I, I realized that there was a sport called amateur boxing <laughs> amateur boxing which i had no no clue about yeah so um it was it was there yeah yeah the, you know my amateur career i had some good times had some very good times in my amateur career some good trips away for but most of the time obviously being from northwest durham um for most of the time in scotland mm. and at one point be four scottish champions from middleweight to super heavyweight in one season when i was 17. Wow, well, that's impressive. So, what yeah. was the was the um, the decision to turn pro in February nineteen eighty four? Was that a financial one, or was it was it more of a case of you'd you'd just done everything you'd you'd achieved in the amateur game? As I say, the amateur game had absolutely no you know in, with with some guidance or some knowledge around me. Maybe you know somebody would have said they stay for the Olympics and that sort of stuff. Um, one of the kids I beat TJ for Holyfield in the Olympics. So that may, you know, but I, my passion was just for pro boxing. All I wanted to do was emulate my hero, Muhammad Ali. I, you know, and it wasn't about money. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't care about money. You know, when you mm-hmm. brought up in, in, um, in poverty and in the Northeast, you know, money wasn't my God and never has been. So it wasn't about money or anything like that. All I wanted to be was the first Northeast champion ever. That yeah. was all I wanted to be. They'd never been. And since, since I was a kid going to school and my career teacher said, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, champion of the world. Like something stupid, <laughs> and that, that that was my whole childhood. Even my dad was like, oh, "Come on, Glenn, you know, think of something, you know, that you get attainable, you know, God love him. Um And so, so for me, it was just, you know, I wanted to prove my dad wrong, and I wanted to prove everybody wrong that I could do the impossible. So, you know, it was for me all. It was all just about winning a world title, being the first in in the northeast to win a world title. But it takes real strength as well, especially when such big characters in your life, like teachers and, and your father, are telling you, you, you you can't do something or they don't want you to do something or whatever it is. It, it does take a, a real kind of gutsiness to to think, actually, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna prove them wrong and then follow that through. Well, I think most people, teachers and you know, coaches and everybody else, were were, were saying it because they you know, thought it was a fact. My dad was saying it because he didn't wanna he didn't want to see me get let down. You know, he wanted to see me. Have an aspiration because you know, great, great father, I missed very much. You know, lovely, lovely man. So, for, but in a way, I think depending on what sort of personality you are, that will either deter you, or it will, it will, you know, it will push you. It will, mm-hmm. um, and that's what it did with me. It was just about proving everybody wrong. It was, you know, I never had no thoughts of defending titles. You know, that was that was fairy tale stuff. You know, defending titles, winning other titles. 
move. You know, that was all. That, none of that existed in my mind. It was just about winning, winning the world title because it was impossible. And, yeah. You know, if you talk to anybody, you know, before I won it, it was. You know, no, no, it wasn't going to happen. It was a northeast. It wasn't going to happen. And the fact, you know, I'm Tyneside, still this area where you know I'm still the only world champion ever. Yeah. Come this 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 part of the world. I know Stewie Hall's done it further further south in, in Dalton, but it just shows you how hard it is and what an achievement it was to try and do that, you know, 31 years ago. Uh, I'm curious what we're talking about world champions from the Northeast and, and potential world champions. How do you rate the current two? I'm thinking of uh, Lewis Ritson and, and Josh Kelly from the region. How do you rate their chances of, of possibly going on to emulate what you achieved? Do you know, I mean, I, I think they've got, the, they've got the connections to do that again. It is. It is still. It's not cut and dry, you know, because it's still very, very tough. Um, Lewis has been found out a little bit. I think um, you know he's a great kid. He's a great kid, Lewis, and he's you know. But I think you know he needs to learn a little bit. He needs a bit of. He needs a bit of ex experience. Um, but I think he can. You know, he can certainly come. Josh Kelly's a great, great talent. Um, but again. You know, I see, I see things they need to change and things, you know, Josh needs to, you know, I, know, I, I love character and Brendan Ingle, you know, I love, you know, seeing his fighters and, you know, that was sort of my style, you know, the Ali sort of style. But Muhammad Ali used to get his hands up whenever a fighter came close. You know, he was great. He could drop his hands when, when he was out of range. And I think Josh, Josh needs, to, needs to look at a few Ali tapes and see what Ali does when yeah. he's in close. Um, and, and, you know, but I mean, that's just me personally. Other people will say, you know, they they you know, they need characteristics and they they need style and they need this. Um, and he's a great kid, Josh. Great, great talent. I'd love to see him. I'd love to see him um, win a world title. But um, there's a few things that, if I was looking after him, there's a few things I'd change. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's have a look. What questions we've got there? Yeah. So I'd like to take you back to your, your first professional bout in 1984. First round knockout against Barry Ellis, which was a, a great first win. What are your memories of that night, and, and how were the nerves before the fight? I was um, I was fighting in Mayfair. My, a bunch of my first fights were in Mayfair. I was with a, a manager called Doug Bidwell, who'd, who'd come to a bit of fame with Al Minder. Um, he wasn't Al Minder's trainer. Um, Alan had a, a really good trainer called Bobby Neal, but he, he decided he wanted to train me, which was unfortunate for me because he wasn't a trainer, so he didn't really know anything. Um, where were we going? <laughs> <laughs> so just, just uh, what, what the experience was like. Oh, the first like, fight. So the first, <laughs> I get my first fight. I get, I was, I get my first fight, and it's in a hotel in Mayfair, um, and I'm going into it, and they were looking at. We had this, I was a light heavyweight. Mm. You know, I was a light heavyweight, boxed, you know, for a GB, Irish select in America, New York Golden Gloves, come back, still a light heavyweight. And then my man, Joe Bill, was saying, oh, we're going to have, your first fight's going to be a heavyweight fight. And I'm thinking, you know, I'd box heavyweights. I'd beat, you know, I'd beat, I'd beat Paul Liston, and I'd beat, you know, Scottish champions, Scottish super heavyweight champions. I'd beat heavyweights, but I wasn't a heavyweight. I was a, I was a light heavyweight. And um, he said, we've got an opponent um, called Barry Ellis. And I was like, okay. I had no clue about any fighters. Um, he's undefeated. Three, he's had three fights, one all three. He's six foot four. <laughs> I'm thinking, <laughs> this is my, and this is, you know, in Mayfair, we had, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd invited Colin Hart. He'd invited like top, top, um, you know, black tie dinner. He'd invited top press guys. And I sat in the hotel the day of the fight. You know, they got me a room after the weigh-in and put me in, in the hotel. And I, I thought, I'm going to watch something for motivation. I watched Rocky. I think it was Rocky 3. And Rocky got splattered. This is getting... This is bad. This is bad. This is, so I was starting to get all sort of negative thoughts in my mind. So when I come to the fight, and then he stands in front of me. I thought it was going to be the shortest career in history. <laughs> this is ridiculous. And it was ridiculous. It was a stupid match for a first fight. Anyhow, I think fear, fear got the better of me. <laughs> and I just ran over and started throwing punches. And I knocked him out in 90 seconds, which was 
the beginning, you know, Colin Hart wrote The White Bruno, The Sweetest Left Tooth Since Henry Cooper on the back page of The Sun. And all of a sudden I was I was off. You know, that was that was that was me away. And it was it was kind of it was great, you know, because I was all of a sudden I was an instant, you know, national pay I was an instant superstar. But it was also I wasn't, you know, I was I wasn't a heavyweight and yet I knew that my road now was was heavyweight. So it became then a case of my training consisted of what I'd ate, mm. how many bottles of gold top milk, what how many brushes of bacon and sausages I'd had for breakfast. And it had nothing, you know, it had nothing to do with diet, nutrition. We we didn't have and even when I was fought for the world title, there was absolutely no one around me that had a clue about nutrition or anything like that. The basic, the very, very basics. It's crazy, isn't it? What what was it like? I, what was it like being on, you know, the, the back page of the Sun and in the sports columns? Uh, I mean, I'm th- I'm thinking specifically of your, your family in the in the northeast. That must have been absolutely wonderful. It was, it was, you know, but it was, um, it was kind of a two sided thing because all of a sudden I took off out of nowhere mm. in London. You know, I just all of a sudden became, you know, headlines, and yet in the northeast I was just running the, I was just running the mill. You know, what I mean, I wasn't, you know, I was maybe. A, you know, a good fighter with some potential, but I was no, I was no sort of, you know, I was no Olympic champion. I was no, you know, senior ABAs. All I, what all I done was won a junior ABA title. So it, it, it was, it was a bit double edged. My career was gonna head off, you know, to bigger. You know, the pressure was then on. All of a sudden, I didn't yeah. have a chance to learn. I was just thrown, thrown in the lions. You know, thrown in the lions den straight away, and I knew it was going to be hard. And it started to get harder. And harder because my manager, all he all he knew about training was just make me spar. Mm. So if you can imagine, you know, a nineteen-year-old kid down in South London, and my sparring partners were Gary Mason, Derek Williams, Fonso Banjo, and they were literally queuing up to beat me up. Yeah, tough guys. You know, I was just a teenager, and got in, you know. Derek Williams would tell you, you know, if you speak to Derek, he'd, he'd tell you the story. They'd be all like, right, you you try and. Do this, do in the first round. I'll try in the second round. So it was very, very, it was very tough. I was spawned Bone Crusher Smith mm. for his fight with, with with Frank Bruno. You know, I was I was spawned partner Thomas Abed with him, 19 years of age. Trevor Burbick, Jerry Kutsia, you know, all, all these fighters I was spawned with. Now I remember coming out of the ring one day um, with Bone Crusher in the Thomas Abed, and I was just a skinny little kid. Oh, and he was hitting me with punches like getting hit with bags of cement. And I came out and the manager started to take my head go off and he's going, is that all right? You know, are you okay? I'm going, <laughs> <laughs> I'd, had a, I'd had a pound. I was starting to get mental problems. So <laughs> with, the, with the scale of, of the things I was doing, it was, um, it was, it was, it was really, it was really tough. It was really, really hard. And, you know, I, I, I kind of got to a certain point where I knew it was all going to go. It was, it was all going to fall apart because the fights were, you know, they were just getting too hard for me as, as, a, as a kid mm. to cope with. Well, well, we'll move on to that. Over the next 15 months after your debut, I think you fought 12 times, winning on each occasion. And then it all kind of bottomed out against John Westgarth via KO in Gateshead. I mean, what was the story behind, behind that? Well, I mean, I had, I had a, lot of, um, a lot of personal stuff going on at that time um, with the, an ex-girlfriend and things like that. It was um, it was all getting, I had problems with Doug Bidwell because I wasn't getting paid anything. Mm. You know, all of a sudden I was getting, you know, in the top handful in the country. I was still a teenager. I was in the top handful in the country as a heavyweight and yet, you know, I was still signing on the dole. Yeah. Which I did, which I, which I had to do. This is how badly I was getting paid. I had to do right up to win the world title. I was oh. signing on the dole. They, they'd stopped my dole for two weeks. So I was getting, you know, and back home, Everybody's like, where's your car? Where's your rolls? Where's this? Because I'm in the papers and everybody's thinking, everybody's thinking this, oh, well, you know, he's, he's living the high life when it was such a struggle for me. It was, it was, mm. it was horrible. And I'm living in a tiny little bed sit, you know, being force fed like some, like some big duck, being force fed food and getting heavier and fatter and more out of condition. And it was all, you know, I kind of knew it was all coming to a, to a, you know, I knew it, I could have predicted myself it was going to all come to a very sad finish. And then that happened. And of, of the worst places it happened, it happened in the Northeast. Yeah. It was kind of like karma. 
And yet, I'd, you know, everybody's thinking I'm big flash Harry. And I hadn't, you know, I hadn't earned pennies. You know, and it was all, I was decimated. And after that, his true colours came through straight away because then he just threw me in with anybody. You know, he just put mm. me in with Anders Eklund, you know, European heavyweight champion, six foot nine. You know, he just put me in with anybody. Um, and it was just, you know, I was back at home, wasn't training in the gym. I was training in my sitting room. And I was having, you know, and I was getting, obviously, I was, I was losing fights to, to top quality heavyweights. Um, and it was, it was dire. And, um, and then there was a big change. You know, my brother, David, who's been an inspiration for me my whole life, <clears throat> I, I was ready to give up, as you would when you're, you know, you're just getting beat up and you're a journeyman and all the rest of it. But my brother had a disability. Um, and he was, you know, we were very, very close. And he would never give up. And, you know, I think he was, he was the inspiration. You know, he was the main inspiration for any success I had because my perseverance in ridiculous times, you know, Ali had said there was quality, but I couldn't give up because my little brother wouldn't give up. So, um, so I, I, I got ill one day because I had too much chocolate. Lot, um, was in bed for about three days, being sick. After that, um, Come, I went to see my dad, who was just a few doors away, and he said, "Jesus, what's the matter? With you? you look horrendous." Mm. I said, "No, Dad, it's great." And I was about, I was about thirteen or fourteen stone. I'm like, I'm a cruiserweight. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm a cruiserweight. And my dad said, "Well, that's, you know, they said you were heavy." I'm like, I'm a, you know, cruiserweight's in now. I'm a cruiserweight. You should have been fighting light heavy, not heavy. Yeah. And and then it was a motivation. So. I got a, I got a, I went and seen a guy and got a little room above a fruit shop and I thought this is it. And this was, this was more rocky than rocky. This was, <laughs> you know, this was like, you know, two brothers, two, you know, my, my disabled brother and me saying, you know, listen, we're, we're going to, we're going to do it. We're going to prove Ali right. Mm. And hanging a bag above, you know, and in, in a room, a little fruit shop. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking as basic as you could get. This was a ramshackle fruit shop in, in the center of Catch Gate. Um, upstairs in the gym, we had no heating. So the wall was falling in. We had no, I mean, it was, it was just a room. It was just a shed. And, you know, as I say, I went on then to stay undefeated. Got some links with the guy called Bo Wolf in America, who had, was close to Cedric Krishna. And then um, the rest is history. British Commonwealth world titles. And, and still, in, still in a fruit shop. Still in a fruit shop, winning the, winning the world title against uh, Peter Lumumba. I mean, Patrick. Patrick, sorry, yes, sorry, I've got that wrong. Yeah, Patrick Lumumba. Um, how did that bout come to take place in Stanley, and what was the build-up like? Because you were really unfancy that night, weren't you? I think all of the nationals had had you written off. Everybody, Glenn Zagano was the headlines in the national off <laughs> um, Colin Hart, who kind of discovered me. He was the guy that gave me the first huge headlines that set me off, and and you know he. He was always a good supporter, and then for him to read Glenn Sagona. But it was, um, it, do you know when a dream comes true? And as I say, it was all about winning the world title. You know, I, was making, I wasn't making any money for fighting for the world title. It was just my opportunity. Um, and that fight, they were looking at venues. Lumumba, and I mean, this is, Lumumba didn't have a following. Lumumba was one of those fighters, um, I mean, if you look at his record, his amateur record, it's like Lomachenko's. He's got a record of something like 365 amateur wins against six losses. Wow. It's, you know, he was, he would have been the Olympic rep, but um, they, they boycotted, um, you know, he boycotted the Olympics that year. He was, the, he was the world amateur champion. I mean, he was, he was, and as he turned pro, and as a pro, Nobody wanted to fight him, and we just heard he'd been sparring Tyson, and you know Tyson had, had all sorts of trouble with him. So, so he was the big, he was the big favorite, but he didn't have a fan base. He was a bit of an unsure, you know, unruly, un, you know, unlikable mm. Kenyan who was who went to Sweden, won everything boxing out of Sweden, um, was based on Sweden, won everything, was based in in South London for a little bit. Uh, and then when I went to America, Don King had picked him up and he boxed America. But nobody wanted to fight him. You know, he was one of those guys that he was too good for his own good. He didn't have, you know, he wasn't, he didn't have anything going for him sort of thing. So 
So they needed somewhere to have that fight. So they, they decided, you know, they'd have it because I had a fan base. I had you know, all the Jodies behind me, so I had a massive fan base. So they thought, well, you know, let Patrick Lumumba get his win in the north. You know, he can travel and get his win in the northeast of England. That'll pay for the job. Got ITV live on a Saturday night. So, so job done. I didn't know any of this. I thought, you know, I'd earn my shot, British, you know, undefeated cruiserweight, British champ, Commonwealth champ, just being out of Black Tyson's eye. Got rave reviews for sparring Mike Tyson in the States. So um, I'd earned my shot. And, and, and it's, so it was going to happen in the, so they thought it would happen in the northeast of England. The different venues, you know, you go back 30 years and there was no, there was no, no arenas, you know, there was no big venues. You know, and obviously I would have loved to, Newcastle was always my home city, and you know, and I would love to afford a Newcastle, but the, you know, there was nothing, there was nothing there, there was nothing anywhere really. Yeah, uh, we were talking about Whitley Bay Ice Rink and different venues, and we were trying to think where you know what they could do. Um, and then the local council, Downside Council, the councillor Alex Watson, the guy was called, the guy's called, a lovely guy. He, he thought, and this, when you think this is a lady, you're staunch. Labour area going out bidding for a world title fight, a commercial world title fight. Yeah, yeah. You know, putting taxpayers' money up and all that sort of stuff, and and he did that. He you know because he had a belief that it would regenerate a very depressed area since the you know the steelworks and all the mines had closed. It was you know it was the unemployment black spot of the northeast, the unemployment black spot of the whole of the country. Down side, it was basically mm. nobody had a job and there was no future, no prospect. So he made a big decision to, to, to gamble on that fight and it paid off and it paid off, you know, businesses came, you know, it captured them, captured the imagination when on, you know, ITV fight night, we had, it all come from the Louisa, the Louisa Leisure Center Stanley. <laughs> and amazingly enough, the following week, Dickie Davis finishes off, Dickie Davis finishes off that broadcast and I hadn't seen this till a little while ago. Somebody showed me this. And when he finishes off the broadcast, he says, well, that's it. It's been a fantastic night in Stanley. Glenn McCroy's made history the first ever world champion. Next week, it's, hi I think it was Sugar Ray Leonard. Oh, yes. It was one of those huge, huge fights. Next week, we're, we're in Las Vegas for Tommy Hurst. And he said it without faltering. <laughs> Stanley, I don't think Stanley in Las Vegas have ever been in this <laughs> no definitely not definitely not and and you nearly had him out you nearly had him out in the first round as well if i remember correctly from watching the um, watching the fight back you really shook him to his boots i did yeah it was um it was quite a strange thing because i i hadn't realized that i hadn't realized that i was such an outsider i you know i kind of thought you know this is mark Junior. i'm gonna win this no nobody's gonna stop me everything's going great i've sparred tyson he couldn't he couldn't put me down or anything like that. So I felt real up for it. And then, um, so training had gone great. It was the only time I'd ever, ever had a training camp, you know, and that was some porter cabins up in concert, up in the Royal Derwent. So we've moved, we've, moved from the, uh, we've moved from the shop at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, just for the, this was just for the fight. For yeah. the first time ever, I had a training camp. Now I'd won British Commonwealth, you know, defended them. But I'd never had ever such thing as a training camp. I trained at home and trained in the food you know, in the little room above the fruit shop, all of that. And then, you know, it was, it was, everybody sort of sponsors came in, which had never happened. And, you know, a lovely guy said, um, you know, you can use my hotel. You're building a Royal Derwent hotel up in County Durham. And he said, use that hotel. I'll put some porter cabins. We'll make it like a proper training camp. So they, they, they went over and above everything. They trained in my old amateur gym, which was the sports center at, at concert, which is, it was a makeshift gym that he just put up per night, two nights a week we train, that was it. And then they said, no, you can have the gym full time, put a full size ring in. So it was just everybody, you know, everybody did everything they possibly can to make my chances, to give me some sort of chance in this fight. And um, I, I, woke, I woke in the morning of the fight feeling great. And I went, had got showered in the port, I went across to the hotel for breakfast with sparring partners. Um, and my, my, my coach, Alan Walker, who's, who's my assistant amateur coach, who's a lovely, lovely guy, and went across to the, the, the hotel, and I picked the paper up before breakfast, and I read the paper, and it just said, Glenn's gone, our full back page. <laughs> no oh, chance. Dear. 
no chance for the northeast. You know, such a shame. And and that was the first time I looked at it and I thought, oh God, <laughs> what's the win? Yeah. And it was the first time it dawned on me. And this was all set up for for Pat Lumumba. You know, Don King had you know allowed us to get win it, so so he could just get the pick the title, let him go. And then we went. You know, so I was, I was, and then I remember thinking to myself, first time I've ever done that, how much do you want this guy? Mm. How much do you want it? What, what's it all about? How much do you want it? And I remember I just, I'll die for this. Mm. I'm going to, two, two scenarios, I'm going to come out champion, I'm going to come out dead. And at that moment, at that moment, and I've never thought like that before, but at that moment I knew I'm going to win this. He's not prepared to die. And it was like some whoa, it was like I'd just suddenly grown grown an armor. Mm. You know, just suddenly become Batman or something, you know, Superman. <laughs> just, whoa. Yeah. And it was just, you know, the realization and the self-belief in yourself that you know what? Nobody tells you what you can do. Or, you know, nobody's told you your whole life. People just told you you're not gonna do it. You're gonna do it, Glenn. So it was um so we went to the fight. Everybody was, you know, it was, it was amazing. You know, the town was, I went down to see my little daughter at the bottom of the street because I lived 300 yards from the leisure center. So I went down and said, said, you know, give her a kiss. And, and then I walked up the street with my bag on my back. So I just walked up from my house up the street. I've gone up Stanley Front Street and I saw a guy with a dicky bow tie. And then I see parking up, picking some guys up some sort of limousine like some you know, I thought it was a funeral car and it was, I'm thinking what is what, what's going on and I'm I, seriously I'm what is going on in Stanley tonight <laughs> yeah and, and then I got to the top of the street and all the crowds were there and the TV cameras and all that and I'm, I realized Jesus this is for me this is the world title and, and that, that was how removed I was from anything as big and then the dressing room I remember was like it was like a it was like in the films, you know, when you see somebody's got the death penalty. Oh yeah, yeah. There's only two people in the in the dressing room. My priest and, and my priest who I was very, very close to had just died just shortly before. He'd been all my fights, Father Feel, and he used to go to all my fights, he used to always be in the corner, he used to bless me before. We're a big Irish Catholic family, so he used to bless me before every fight and he died he's had a you know and it was so it was it was somebody the whole yeah yeah there was a, uh, another priest in there filling his filling his place who'd come you know from the local church and he'd come and there was uh, my great friend john gibson gibbo from the chronicle who's you know my, been my best friend you know then never since and he was taking notes and he was somber <laughs> and it was like you go to the death the death, you know, the gas chamber, yeah, you the electric chair, you know, you know, when you see them old films when you're a kid, the old gangster films, <laughs> all that, the dressing rooms, a priest and a journalist. And I was thinking, this Jesus, what's going this? It, you know, it was very quiet and, and nobody was really in my dressing room. And then they come pop in and said, right, it's time. And you're scared to death at that moment. You know, you're yeah, really no. it's like going, you know, you know, it's really a terrible tense moment and then i got in the corridor and the buzz started and then the door opened into the main hall and it was a boom <laughs> a wall of noise oh i mean unless you were there and the people you know if you ask anybody that was there any single person that was there they'll tell you it was unbelievable mm. it was you know they had just the Northeast had just packed, you know, the whole, it just seemed like the Northeast had packed into that tiny, you know, that small little leisure center that they took doors to fit more people in. They took doors off and done all sorts of stuff. And I remember thinking just at that moment, nobody's told these I'm going to lose. <laughs> yeah, so you've got to win now. They just ripped. And, and then it was still, I was very, very nervous. And if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see me in the corner. I'm nervous. And you can tell, you can see the nerves. And then, all I'd been told of Bob Williford was 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 box him, box him, box him. Just box him. The kid's dangerous, you know, he's really big punches, but you know, good start. I knocking everybody out. Just box him. And I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm in the corner. And then they announce him. They they you know, I, I get in the and I'm come out of the car, I'm nervous. And then they say they young from Kenya, but whatever they and you're Patrick Lamumba, and he comes out at the he comes out to the center of the ring. He walks out to the center of the ring, and he goes, 
<laughs> Gives it the old arms out. And he just got, and I, all of a sudden, the Stanley Lad kicked in. Yeah. And I think, I'm going to knock his fucking head off. He's taking a Michael here. <laughs> it, it, honestly, it was, it was just, you don't do that to Stanley kid Stanley. You're taking the piss. <laughs> You're taking the piss. And it was just, all of a sudden, boom, everything, that game plan, box them out of the window. <laughs> yeah. And it just, that, that was it. And it really just come, you know what? Boom, you're going to have it, son. <laughs> and I went out to do a left to almost knock him out. I mean, he came back, he came back, and he came <clears> back, and, you know, really hard. And it started getting really tough. And he did things that nobody ever done to me in the ring. Mm. And, you know, he stepped to one side, hit me with a double right hand, perforated my eardrum in the round about round five. I had it, it was, it was all starting to slip away again then. Yeah, like five, six. And then I looked down in the corner, I'm hanging over the ropes. I looked down, and my brother's there, David's there. And he wasn't supposed to be there because my mum couldn't look after him. Mm. My mum couldn't take him there. She was too nervous about it. So David wasn't supposed to be there. And he's there in his wheelchair and he's sitting there and he's cheering like mad. And it was like a miracle because he wasn't supposed to be there. And you know, the police had picked him up from my auntie's house with my mum, brought him to the ringside so he could see because wow. you know, people thought I was going to, you know, Word was getting out. I was doing, you know, I was still in it. I was doing really well. And he's sitting there, and then all of a sudden, that was it. Yeah, that's that all the motivation he needed. Popeye got his spinach. Whoa, we're going to do this. This was our dream. This was our dream. We're going to do this. And, and then that was it. It was my, I didn't, I didn't even need to listen to the, I, you know, I smashed them for the, the next few rounds. So it was, um, it was great. It was a wonderful, wonderful win. And, you know, probably a night that would live, live with me forever, but the next morning will live with me forever as well. Because although it was the greatest night in my life, the next morning I woke up still with my belt, still with everything, and it was, I felt, I felt like I'd been hit with a horse. Mm, to come and down. It was, yeah. And, you know, maybe, maybe being explained all that, that would have, you know, but I didn't have people around me that knew the game or knew boxing. You know, I was very inexperienced. Everybody that was around me in the family and all, I had no idea about winning titles. And, you know, we, we just conquered the world. And I woke up and it was the worst morning of my life mm. because I didn't have a dream anymore. Yeah. I had no goals. I'd done what everybody said. I'd done what everybody said I couldn't do. You know, Mr. Collins in careers. I've done, <laughs> done it. I've done it. I, you know, I've conquered the world, and and you know, a big part of a big part of my whole boxing, a big you know, me competing. I would have retired then because mm. that was it. That was that was Rocky. I'd done it. Yeah, yeah. The world and for David. That was that was his achievements. That's what he was hanging on to life for. He was hanging on to see me win the world title, and then it just it just seemed like every you know, there was only downhill now. There was only losing the world title. There was only losing David. There was only, you know, back to normality and all that sort of stuff. So it was a very, it was a, it was a big downer. Um, it was a massive downer after that. Not, I lost the title. I lost. You know, I didn't make any money. I lost the title. David died. It was, you know, it was all pretty. It was all pretty. Um, pretty bleak. We we attempted not to retire after that after that world title win. What what was the motivation for for keeping? Well, making money. You know, I, I signed off the dole. My speech in the ring after the fight was Stanley Dole office. I'm not coming back. <laughs> and, that, and that was it. I, 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 I thought I'd never have to sign on again. That was it. You know, for somebody that never had any prospects of a job, there was no jobs around. The Northeast was still, you know, really, 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 really down after being decimated by Thatcher. It was, it was, it was, it was tough. You know, it was, um, it was very tough. I had to fight on. Um, to make some money, mm. you know, I still hadn't got anywhere near, you know, making, you know, carving out a future or doing anything like that. So, I, so I had to fight on, and you know, had had some defenses, and then um, had a first defense in, you know, which was very very tough. You know, I was just fighting out of spirit, and again, you know, it wasn't so I I, I didn't want it anymore, sort of thing. And I, I had um, Cesar Martini. Um, you know, pulled out a great win after, you know, getting defeated. And then they, they, you know, and then I really fell out of love with boxing because the power of the people around me, um, 
Bob Willerford and that, I went out to uh, sign for a fight in a hotel you know, why I wasn't making any money. You know, it was yeah. kind of kind of that you know I defended, I'd won the world title, defended it, and yet I still was getting like peanuts for for mm. paydays. And I was thinking this is wrong. You know, this is this is wrong. Um, and then I had another defense, which was supposed to be a voluntary defense, and they brought in the number one contender, Jeff Lampkin. Um, and I knew something was wrong. That you know, I was arguing against my promoter, and my manager was arguing against me. Yeah. Well, um, so I knew something was amiss. And then they brought the they brought the fight forward, and I remember on the phone uh, saying to Bo, "What are you doing? You know, because I had no nutrition. All I did was starve myself for for eight weeks. You know, what I want, and then starve myself. I didn't have a clue about you know keeping a balanced diet. I didn't have a clue about diet anything. And um, and then they brought the fight forward to like five and a bit weeks, and it was it was and I had the conversation. I remember saying to Bo. I can't make the weight, Bo. I can't make the weight. Five weeks, I can't make the weight. You know, I, I, cause I'd just blow up. You know, I'd just be fat and rubbish, but I'd just blow up. Yeah. Like, like Ricky Hatton did. I mean, his was more, you know, he, he had the time to get it off. So it was, it was, it, it was thought out. But mine wasn't. Mine was just brought the fight forward. I'm thinking there's something wrong. This is wrong. And I, he said, no, no, I'll be, I'll be in a week before. You'll definitely make the weight. I'm like, I can't make the weight. Cannot make the weight. So then my training just became a fight with the scales and it was horrible. You yeah. know, and if you had anybody around me, it was just, they were just, you know, it was just killing me. It was just, you know, radiators full up, sitting underneath, it's <laughs> over your head, training in bin bags all the time. And it was just trying to get rid of this weight. And, um, and I knew I wasn't going to win the fight. I knew, I knew I'd been sacrificed. That was during you as well, all, all of the weight loss and, and, and being hot all the time. Oh, I knew, I, knew I, I, was, I, I prayed going into that fight that I wouldn't die. Yeah. I was in that bad a mental state. I just prayed I, wouldn't, I, I wasn't going to die. And I, was, I, I wrote a letter to my then, my then wife saying, um, never let me fight again. I was 25 years of age. Wow. Never let, I was 25, won the world title at 24. Never let me fight again. Never want to fight again. These bastards, never. This is horrible. Mm. What they're doing to me, you know, they they they're taking my title off me. They're stripping me of my title by making me go through with this fight. They didn't. We didn't have to. We didn't have to. So I don't know what went on. All I know is I didn't get paid my full amount. Um, and that that was that was it. That was the end. I retired. Twenty five years of age. Hated the game. Never wanted to come back. And then I got a letter off HMRS HMRC saying you owe. Thousands and thousands in tax. Oh, God. Thousands and thousands. Obviously, I'd just ripped off my money. I never saw my manager ever again. Really? Never saw him ever again. He just left <clears throat> with the wages, never saw him ever again. And that, that seems to have been a, a common theme throughout boxing it in is. your time and before it. It only seems to have improved maybe in the, in the past 20, 30 years or so. I think if, you know, if people can get away with that, they still get away with it. Mm. So it's... Um, it's it's all I wanted was a fair shake, you know. And it was, it was, it was tough because I've got a career that some of you know people say, "Oh, what a great career you had!" And it wasn't a great career; it was an awful career. It was terrible. Mm. You know, I, you know, I say that, and they're like, "Whoa, you won the world title!" I'm saying, "Yeah, I won the world title. I could have done, I could have, and should have done so much more." Mm. You know, my, my great, my best days. I had I'd never even boxed during my best days. You know, they stuck me in with them. You know, I had to fight Lennox Lewis to pay the tax man. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. What was what was fighting fighting Lennox Lewis like? It wasn't very wasn't very nice. <laughs> I could <laughs> <can't laughs> well, I, was, I wasn't bothered about it. I would love to fight Lennox a few years before. You know, when 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 it was Glenn McCroy, the the, the passionate kid, even giving away away. But it was you know I had a, I fought him for the money. It was just for the money, and it was um, and you know you know I've still got pride enough to train hard and work hard and try. But you know when you're not. You know, when you're going in against you know all-time heavyweight greats, <laughs> yeah, you, know, you need to be at your very best just to try and survive. So, um, you know, so but anyway, I come back and I fought for the world title again in, in Moscow again. Alcohol. Um, again, it was I wanted to get my pride back, but I didn't particularly wasn't bothered about winning or anything like that, which sounds stupid, but you know, winning would have just got me into getting ripped off again. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, so. you know, I, would have, I, would have, I tried to win, but it was just, you know, we clashed heads in a certain round. 
him like there and me on the nose. Um, and I had to go down on my knee for a couple of, which he got a 10-7 round, then he just ran away from me. Yeah, yeah. The, the title. So um, I was happy enough. I, you know, I proved that even, you know, in '93, four years later, I still proved I was, you know, top world class. And you just wonder, you know, if I'm being looked after and kept at that weight, what I could have really done over them four years. There were four years that were wasted that yeah, I, could, yeah. I could have, you know, done a lot. But anyhow, that that's all by the by. I won the world title. Oh, absolutely. And I got the chance after win the world title. You know, I got the. I had a great interview with a guy called Ian Dark, who did the company for BBC. Um, a new company called Sky TV came on the on the scene just after I won the world title. They asked Ian Dark, you know, who do you want as a co-commentator? He said, I've just had an interview with somebody who's super passionate about boxing, who's, you know, a, a historian, can tell you all about the old fighters and, you know, real passion for the, the sport. Um, he doesn't speak the same language as us. <laughs> <laughs> dialect that we have to sort of train um but you know if we can get that right you know we so so straight after my world title win against Lumumba I I I was working for Sky TV and then that was the start of a new journey and that was you know that was that was you know made up for it kind of made up for the bad the bad paydays um you know because I won my world title I, I, I made history you know, so that was, you know, that, that's, that's not bad. That's not a bad box to tick. And then I got to, you know, to have, well, I'm still commentating on the face. 30 years, 27 years with Sky and three years um, I'm doing now by, you know, by, my, by myself. Um, how, how, much, how much of a godsend do you think that's been, that, that experience with Sky obviously coming so soon after, after you finish retiring? I mean... It could have gone the other way, perhaps. We've seen other champions struggle and ex-champions struggle after after hanging up the gloves. How much of a godsend was that move into Scotland? That, that was that got me through. Um, you know, my life's been outside and my life's been turbulent <laughs> always. But um that that gave me some stability, you know, that gave me some stability in my life, you know, for myself, for my own sanity and everything yeah. that that gave me some and that gave me something to focus on. And I love, you know, I love it. I love you know, I love I love boxing. I love the fighters. I love being involved in that. And you know, it was amazing doing the fights that we did. Um, you know, the experiences that we've had, and what I could bring, what I could bring that nobody else, you know, before or since could bring to that sort of role, is the fact that I have I have witnessed boxing from every angle. Mm. You know, where you know they get the they get the champs on you know, the world champion that, but they've never been journeymen. Yeah, yeah. You know, they've never been down and out and careers finished. You know, they've never been on the dole, you know, when they win fighting world titles. They've never had the experiences that I've had. Granted, I didn't want them experiences, <laughs> but, you know, I've been, I've been a, you know, up and coming. I've, you know, I've been, a, I've been a contender. I've been a prospect. I've been a journeyman. I've been finished. I've been... In my career, you know, I've been world champion. In my career, I can tell you what it's like from, you know, from the journeyman going in there just to collect his wages and what's on his mind. I can also tell you what it's like to be a champion and what's on his mind. So there's not many fighters have got the, the experiences, but well, there's none that's got the experiences that I've got. Um, and that came across, I think, in, 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 my, in my comedy. I can still have empathy with a kid who's just trying to make, who's trying to make, you know, Five hundred quid to, to pay his family. I, th I think, um, in that sense, you were you were definitely a pioneer because it it's commonplace for a, a commentator to have a an Xboxer as a, a co-commentator now. But back then, it wasn't really the done thing, was it? No, no, it was it was normally it was sort of um, Harry by himself. They'd occasionally have people on. I think um, Reg and Jim were probably were probably the first to to start to go that way. Mm. Um, and then obviously Sky, Sky the new kid on the block. But I mean, when I started, when I started the first show ever with 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 Sky as, as it started, and I was there through the whole development of Sky, it was like people would say to me, like, "What what are you doing now?" And I'd be like, "I'm, I'm Sky TV." And they're like, "What's that?" And I was like, oh, <laughs> See, that's that, 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 you know, and they're like, "Is that that thing with dishes?" 
TV dishes. No, absolutely. That's <laughs> never going to take off. No chance. Why don't you do some with the BBC or ITV or something? You know, that's that's. And I was like, no, no, this is this this. I'd be to America with Bo Williford and in his garden. This is back in 1987 or something, 80, 86, 87. He had, he had this big flying saucer in his garden. And I was like, what's that? He's yeah. in my TV. I'm like, your TV? He's like, yeah, that's a satellite TV. Satellite TV. <laughs> I was like, how many channels do you get? Oh, we got hundreds. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> well, there must have been three when you were four. Kid, three or four. <laughs> yeah, four. We're just getting channel four. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the hundreds. I was so I'd be sitting there on his city, flicking through all these channels, thinking, "This is nuts. This is this is." No, nuts. There's never anything on though. <laughs> when people said, "You know, it's nothing," I'd be like, "I guarantee you, this is the future." And they're like, rubbish, man. rubbish." So I spent more, I spent the first ten years defending Sky <laughs> yeah. as a bona fide job. <laughs> you you were obviously able to recognise um, to recognise that trend, and and you've been in the commentary business and, and the Sky Sports business for a long time now. What what do you think the the future is in the next twenty years? Obviously, Sky are still big players, and you've got BT and you've got DAZN abroad coming in with subscriptions. Where where do you think the future lies in that regard? James, the biggest thing is is what's happening now. Mm. Yeah, of biggest course. thing is what's happening now. Joshua Ooh. and Fury. Cor no, coronavirus. Oh well, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't no, considered I mean, that. What, what, you know, what, you know, what the future is. I mean, the first fight, Shaka Stevenson was fighting them um, one last night. So the first fight come back to Las Vegas yeah. um, last night. You know, uh, it's a very different, you know. Tournament with face masks, um, boxing behind closed doors, all of that sort of stuff. So I'm not sure. Please God, it just gets back. Your know, normality, normality can can come come back. But I'm, I'm, I mean, I think I don't think boxing will will really kick off with any sort of crowds and all that next year. Mm -hmm. uh, we sort of stand out the virus, and you know, obviously that's that's gonna ease off in the summer. It's what comes back in the winter. How that. So, so I don't know. I don't know. I, I really don't. I really don't know. Um, it's kind of out of all of our hands a little bit at the moment. Please God, it will come back. Normality will come back, and we'll get back to to the fight. And if so, if so, um, you know, I want to. I want to. I, I do want to see boxing back. And and for me personally, um, I've had time to think. And what's what's for my career and what I want to do. And I, I want to get, I want to get, I've never really been fully committed. I've done a little bit of training and looked after a few kids and had a couple of Cubans and this, that and the other. But in no, you help them out sort of thing. Never been fully, that's my job. So I think in the next couple of years, I want to see myself move more out of the, out of the, the broadcasting side and into, um, you know, back in the ring myself and given all that experience, all that experience, all that knowledge that I have brought across in 30 years as a broadcaster, I want to take that to the fighters uh, in the ring and in the, in the gym and give that knowledge on. And I, you know, I, know I'm, I know I'm perfectly prepared at this stage. I've been around the greatest fighters in the year. I've, I've dissected styles. I've dissected fights. I've, you know, that's, that's been my job for 30 years. So I know how to do it, and I know how other people do it. So it's now time to um, to help people do it. And there's no better place in the Northeast. There's no better place that needs it than the Northeast. Do you know, and I've never been, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm for the Northeast altogether. I want to see all Northeast fighters um, do well. So, um, so yeah, what's this space? What's this space, James? Yeah, I look, for, I look forward to watching that space. And, and thank you very much for, uh, for taking an hour out of your day, Glenn. I, I really appreciate it. It's been a, a blast from my end. I hope it was from yours too. Oh, great. It's been lovely. It's been lovely. And good luck. Good luck with your career. I will see you around. See you around at ringside.